Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Uh, we live in a day when cries for justice surround us. And what is justice? We've all experienced injustice in our lives. We've all been wronged. And we've all also wronged others. And every week we read stories of the many injustices in our world. Racial injustices and economic and sexual and criminal and political injustice. How are we to make sense of these controversies? We can't turn on the TV or especially look on the internet without finding many, many tales of gross injustice. In fact, the internet has ensured that we can have a steady supply, a steady stream of reasons to be outraged, as short-lived as those outrages tend to be. Well, at its heart, this preoccupation with justice is an appropriate response to the brokenness of this world. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. There are many things wrong in this world. But in the varying voices that we hear in the world, what we're experiencing are competing visions of justice and injustice, competing arguments for what is wrong and what must be done to make it right. We're hearing different offers of salvation from our troubles. Which voices inform our views of justice, our hopes in this world? One of the many ways that the Bible serves us is by giving us historical perspective on these issues. Henry Ford famously said, What do we care about what they did 500 or 1,000 years ago? It means nothing to me. History is more or less bunk. It's tradition. We don't want tradition. But of course, Henry Ford is himself history now, and his view of history was tragic. We need a perspective longer than our lifetimes and broader than ourselves if we're going to think and act with justice in this world. We need history. And more than that, we need the Lord's perspective on history. This world wasn't created this morning. And by studying how God has spoken, how he's revealed himself, how he's acted in the world, in in history, in his word, we can gain the historical and theological perspectives we need for our everyday lives so we can walk faithfully and hopefully in the world that God has created. Today's text contains some concepts that are probably foreign to us, things like an avenger of blood and cities of refuge and ritual priesthood. But these concepts may be somewhat strange. The concerns that they relate to are timeless because there's truly nothing new under the sun. The human condition has, ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden, involved large measures of injustice. Everyone recognizes that to some respect. And that's why there's so many competing views and explanations of the problem and competing offers for solutions. So how do we find our bearings in the midst of a world gone mad? Well, we must begin with God. And we must begin with his character and commands. If we try to analyze, let alone to resolve the problems in our world with our own best efforts, we're going to make a hopeless mash of it. If we go by popular sentiments or whatever the beautiful people think, we will be constantly shifting as we try to stay on the supposed right side of history. But if we turn our gaze to the Lord of history, 
and we listen to his voice, we can walk sure-footed in our daily lives. Today's text is going to provide us with a broad principle that will orient us to walk justly in this life. And while justice is an explicit concern of the first part of this passage, I think we'll see that justice is at stake in the whole of these two chapters. We're going to look at human justice and divine justice and how we should relate to God. And this is the theme, I think, that ties it all together. As recipients of such a great salvation, honor God in all your ways. That's what the Lord is calling us to. In, in light of the salvation that we received and how that reorients, that reinterprets all of life for us, from that we are to honor God in all our ways. And we're going to look at three areas of application for honoring God in our day-to-day living. So we're going to look at how to honor God in justice and to honor God in worship and to honor his great salvation, which is the ground and motive the transformative power that allows us to actually honor him. So let's look at our first point, honor God in justice. And we're going to jump right into the deep end with capital punishment. Uh, Not because I want to debate the merits of it, but because it is a factor in this text. If you follow the headlines, you know that Pope Francis has recently made uh, headlines for attempting to shift the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church on capital punishment. Uh, If you've followed Francis at all, you know that he's trying to change quite a lot about the Catholic Church, and he does it in this really medieval way of issuing a statement and then kind of denying it and then not denying it and seeing what the press does with it. All the while, he's upholding this doctrine of papal infallibility, that somehow there's this unbroken line of true teaching all the way back to Peter and that he's the latest exemplar of it. It's quite the juggling act that he's performing. So his latest move is changing the catechism, the official teaching document of the Catholic Church, with how they teach their members, especially their children. He's changing the catechism to read the death penalty is inadmissible because it's an attack on the inviolability and dignity of the person. Well, this has caused no end of discussion and dissent in the Catholic world as the church has affirmed the death penalty and even practiced the death penalty throughout its history. Well, in this text today, we're dealing with that, dealing with capital punishment. The Old Testament affirms the death penalty in a number of cases, including especially in the case of murder. And going all the way back to Genesis 9-6, right after the flood, as, as the Lord speaks to Noah, he says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And then in the Mosaic Covenant in Exodus 21.12, he says, Whoever strikes a man so, so that he dies shall be put to death. This is part of the national law code of Israel. Shedding innocent blood defiled the land, and it required justice. Listen to Numbers 35.33-34. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. And no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that's shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. So because the Lord dwells with his people, they are called to be holy. Murder defiled this holiness and required the justice of capital punishment to atone for it. But that's not all we find on this topic in the Old Testament. Elsewhere we find instructions concerning the question of motive. To murder a person willfully and intentionally always incurred the death penalty. 
But the Old Testament recognizes the category of accidental death, similar to what we call manslaughter. And in that case, there's a provision made to ensure that justice would be practiced. That's the context for Joshua 20 and the category of cities of refuge. So with that in mind, let's read Joshua 20, verses 1 to 9. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home, to the town from which he fled. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kirith Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. And beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan and Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the strangers sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there, so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood." Till he stood before the congregation. Well, the Hebrew word for avenger here is the same word used for kinsman redeemer, made famous by the story of Ruth. Boaz was the kinsman redeemer. He's the closest male relative of an affected party. And as the redeemer, he was to marry the childless widow. As the kinsman redeemer of blood, as the avenger of blood, he was charged to execute the person who killed his relative. The, the avenger of blood is mentioned in Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy 19, but it's never explicitly prescribed in Scripture. Instead, it was just widely practiced and widely abused in the ancient Near East. So the well-known law of the, New Testament, or the Old Testament, eye for an eye, was in, in fact a restraint on this kind of system of justice. It's an often misunderstood law. Because so often in this system... It was life for an eye, or life for a tooth, or an endless cycle of blood. You killed my relative, and so I kill you, right? And so that was one restraint in the Old Testament on that system. The Israelites knew and worshipped the God who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. He didn't say vengeance is wrong or bad. He is the holy God who judges all. But he did not intend for earthly justice to be a private affair. Instead, he charged the magistrate, the rulers, the, uh, the rulers that he appointed to ensure that justice was fair and reasonably timely. We see that even in the New Testament in Romans 13.4, which tells us that the authorities are given the sword. They do not bear the sword in vain. The authority to punish evil was to be a public affair, and this was God's design. That authority was to be exercised through a just Process That process must be just. And the cities of refuge then were one means of accomplishing justice in how we dealt with these manners. So how did this work? 
Well, I think Scripture gives us the best explanation. So let's look at Deuteronomy 19, 4 to 13. This is the provision for the manslayer who by fleeing there may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally, without having hated him in in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live. Lest the avenger of blood in hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him because the way is long and strike him fatally, though the man did not deserve to die since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. Therefore, I command you, You shall set apart three cities. And if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has sworn to your fathers and gives you all the land that he has promised to give to your fathers, provided that you are careful to keep all this commandment which I command you today by loving the Lord your God and walking in his ways, then you shall add these three other cities to these three, lest innocent blood be shed in your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And so the guilt of blood shed be upon you. But if anyone hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him, and attacks him, and strikes him fatally so that he dies, and he flees into one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there, and hand him over to the avenger of the blood, so that he may die. Your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel, so that it may be well with you. So Deuteronomy, these verses, are commands to Israel before they had entered the promised land. They're still east of the Jordan, and so these are the first three cities that they're setting aside. And in Joshua 20, we're reading of the additional three cities as they've come into the land of promise. So there's six cities total, well spread throughout Israel, so they were all with everyone who lived in Israel was within a day's journey of a city of refuge. If someone killed another person accidentally, he was to flee to the city of refuge for protection from private vengeance and to entrust himself to the Lord's process of justice. So, briefly, what principles of justice do we see in this text? Well, I think several. First, human life is sacred. Whether a life was taken intentionally or by accident, it required an accounting. It required a just process. The taking of life was never just brushed over. Blood pollutes the land. It is immensely important to God as persons made in the image of God. The shedding of blood is immensely serious. And if we haven't made the connection already, this has tremendous import for the approval of abortion in America. Millions of lives over decades with official sanction slaughtered in our land is manifestly wicked. And our nation needs not just a law change, but repentance. To repent of selfish, racist, and unjust practice. Life is sacred to God. Secondly, justice is universal and unbiased. It applied to all of Israel. We see that in, the, in how the cities of refuge were distributed. It wasn't just wherever the rich people were. And in the perhaps surprising fact that this applied both to the Israelite and to the sojourner, the foreigner among them. That's verse 9. Some aspects of Israel's life applied only to them as God's people. But justice was to be universally fair to all, regardless of their ethnicity or religion. 
And additionally, when it came to murder, no ransom was possible. In our society, the wealthy often receive better counsel and easier sentences. That is unjust. Justice is universal and unbiased. That's God's justice. And then thirdly, justice requires process. So the manslayer was to flee to the city, to the elders at the gate of the city who were sitting there to render judgments and transact business in order to plead his case and to potentially gain entrance to the city. Once he was admitted, Numbers 35 and and later in this passage tells us he was to receive a fair trial and a just verdict. So he goes to the God-appointed authorities and engages the God-appointed process that he had instituted. This was not mob justice. It's not vigilantism. And it wasn't made up on the spot. It was public and principled. And additionally, we know from Numbers 35.30 that the conviction of a murderer, capital punishment, required witnesses, multiple witnesses, So Numbers 35.30, if anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. It was a high bar to convict and impose the death penalty. The Bible is filled with principles of justice like these that must inform our thinking and actions. So how can we apply these principles to the controversies of our day? Justice isn't just about when we have jury duty. In fact, I think it's far more mundane than that. So we're going to look at public and private matters of justice. And I'll warn you, I think these are touchy topics because they're, they're so very common. Every day, every day we're engaging with matters of justice. So privately, we must apply justice. We must fear the Lord in the sins of the mouth and sins of the ear, such as gossip. And slander. These sins are a large part of our everyday lives to the point where I think we can scarcely recognize that we're either engaging them or being the recipients of them. But anytime we spread or receive, and it's both, spread or receive a bad report from or to a friend about someone else and we don't apply biblical principles of speech and justice, we're sinning. When we hear tales of how someone wronged them and and we just listen rather than asking questions and engaging biblical categories and even confronting, we are failing to act justly. We're failing to love the Lord and failing to love all of our neighbors, often in the name of loving this one particular neighbor. I think this is hardest with our friends. We want to care for and comfort the hurting, which is right. And the way to do that best is to lovingly And patiently honor God's truth, his word. When a friend tells us about how someone has wronged them, we tend to go through three steps. We believe them uncritically, we take up an offense for them, and we adjust our attitude toward the offender accordingly. And then all too often it includes the fourth step of telling others about this alleged wrongdoing. But biblical concern should be coming to our minds. Are these allegations actually true? And why are you telling me this? Am I rightly involved in this situation? Have you engaged with the appropriate authorities or with the person who's offended you? Have you gone to the one that you're saying has wronged you? And of course, that last question we know comes directly from Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18 to go to the brother who has offended us. 
And if someone raises that, we can be likely to answer, oh, you don't understand. He's, he's so harsh. That would never work. But biblically, we have to charge them to act justly, to fear God. We, we must not insert ourselves illegitimately into a situation. Proverbs 18.17 tells us, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. And, and catch that language. Their case doesn't just seem plausible, like, oh, that could be. It seems right. It's convincing. It begins to affect us. It begins to affect our attitudes towards others. Do we understand that? When, when we're listening, listening to gossip and slander, our prejudice is to be convinced by them. Our hearts are easily drawn to offense without knowing what's truly going on. That's why God's justice must be firmly established in our hearts and minds. We, we have to charge our friends to follow God's word, to fear God. If they won't go to the authorities or to the one who has offended them, and different situations require different responses, then the only option available to us is to offer to go with them, to help them to work it through. And if someone refuses that offer, it's a fair sign that something's amiss in how they're handling the situation. They're recruiting sympathizers to their cause rather than fearing God and working through offenses. It may well reveal that their so-called offense is itself unjust. Walking with justice in our private relationships is challenging. And it's most challenging because we want to be known as kind and sympathetic people. It's challenging because we can be more concerned about feelings, including our feelings and our friends' feelings, than about the truth But these principles of truth and justice aren't opposed to kindness and love. They're, in fact, the fullest expression of love that seeks the highest good for our friends. We want to keep them from gossip and slander and bitterness so they can walk humbly before God and others. If we entertain the tasty morsels, that's the language of Proverbs, the tasty morsels of gossip, it might seem loving. Oh, I'm just listening. It's a kind and sympathetic ear. But it is far from loving. Because it's a sin against God and others for which we must repent and seek forgiveness. Turning to more public justice, we don't have avengers of blood and cities of refuge, but I think we're witnessing an unprecedented level of mob justice in how the Internet handles accusations of injustice. We have to recognize the Internet thrives on clickbait and outrage. All it takes is an accusation of scandalous dealings to get not only our eyeballs, but our hearts. Internet outrage appeals to our self-righteousness like few other things. Just go to any news site and read the comments section. It it is pompous, condemnatory self-righteousness from both sides of a story. That is not biblical justice. The report of an allegation is not a conviction. Justice requires process, and it requires duly constituted authorities. It requires hearing both sides and gathering as much evidence as possible. The internet is not the venue to accomplish this. But it's so enticing to us. So here's a few questions, uh, just three questions to evaluate. Now, there could be many more. But three questions to evaluate if we're handling these matters justly or unjustly, both in public and privately. So first, should I be reading or listening to this? Am I properly involved here? So, so many of our problems disappear 
if we don't involve ourselves illegitimately? Don't you feel like you have enough problems in your own life? Do we need to insert ourselves into things that really aren't properly entrusted to us by God? Okay? Secondly, am I leaning toward one side or another before I've even engaged? Do I think that one side is likely to be right because they're my friends? Or that they're likely to be right because of the color of their skin? Or their gender? or their financial status, or what they do for a living, or where they live? Am I prejudiced coming into this? That is unjust. And third, what am I after? Why am I engaging in this? Why does this interest me? Is this about scoring points for my side? So much of talk radio is just that. Yeah, they are the problem. They are the jerks. We're the champions of righteousness. Right? Is it about scoring points for my side? Is it about self-pity? Or am I truly concerned about the righteousness of God? Am I truly loving God and loving others in how I engage with this? There's other questions to ask, but I think those three go a long way towards helping us to evaluate if we're thinking and acting justly in controversy. Now, excuse me, we'll look at one final element of chapter 20 before we turn to our next point. In verse 6 we read, And he, the manslayer, shall remain in the city till he stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who was high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town, in his own home, to the town from which he fled. (coughs) So this is for the person who has killed someone accidentally. Even though it was an accident, There is a consequence. He has to leave his home and live in this city of refuge. He has to leave his family and everything that was familiar to him for a time. But yet, the death of the high priest frees him. Frees him from that penalty. He can return to his home. How can that be? I think there's two connections we can make there. The first is that the high priest functions symbolically for the whole nation of Israel. Right? He would go in and offer sacrifices for the nation. So he's, he's a symbol of the nation. So his death serves as a symbolic death for the nation. It didn't actually pay for the sins of the nation, but it's a picture of atonement. Like so much of the Old Testament, it's a picture pointing forward. So when he dies, the manslayer is free to return to his home. And then secondly, in building on that, these Israelite high priests pointed forward to the true high priest, Jesus Christ. Justice required that these priests died for their own sins. And though they represented the nation, they they needed atonement for themselves and could not atone for others. Jesus was and is the great high priest. His priestly, this is so different, right? His priestly ministry is never for himself. The other priests had to administer the sacrifice for themselves, His ministry was never for himself because he was perfect and obedient in every way. So his death is not for his own sins. And that is grossly unjust. There was no just reason on earth for Jesus to die. But his death was for the sins of others. And in that way, it is perfect justice. The wrath of God against the sins of his people, the wrath that we all deserve, was laid upon Jesus and punished at the cross so that from him we might receive full pardon 
and glad adoption and the very righteousness of God. At the cross, justice was not set aside. It was satisfied. God's holy wrath against sin was propitiated. It was removed so that injustice, it's right, it's just for the Father to say to his people, you are forgiven and righteous and loved and adopted. Welcome, enter into the joy of your master. So as recipients of this great salvation, we are to honor God in all our ways, including honoring him in justice, how we engage in justice. And that brings us to the second point, which is honor God in worship. Chapter 21 is the final portion of the book of Joshua that's dealing with the distribution of the land. So chapters 13 to 19 deal with how the land's divided throughout the tribes of Israel. And chapter 20 is the cities of refuge and how they're distributed. And then chapter 21 is how the Levitical priests receive their homes. They're to receive cities, which are really mostly small villages, in which to live and to raise the livestock that they receive through their priestly service. This is because the Levites were not to receive their own lands. They weren't given lands like the other tribes of Israel, for the Lord is their inheritance, as Deuteronomy 10.9 tells us. So they had been called to special service, and they were, uh, in a way, God's sojourners, sojourning in the land. And, of course, on the other side of the coin, the Israelites giving these cities to the Levites is an offering back to God out of the provision that he has made For them, his gracious provision of land. Now, this account's pretty straightforward and it's longer, so we're not going to read the whole things or spend a great deal of time here, but I want to point out a couple of points from the text. First, in verse 4, we notice that the descendants of Aaron receive cities from Judah and Simeon and Benjamin. They're right in the middle of Israel, which we know in a few centuries is where the temple will be built. And it makes sense that that the sons of Aaron would be there to minister in the temple. And then in the next 37 verses, we read about how the Levites are distributed. They're dispersed all throughout the land, throughout all the tribes. Well, to what purpose? Why did, why did God spread them throughout the land? In Deuteronomy 33.10, we're given a, a twofold service of the Levites. They shall teach Jacob your rules and, eat, and Israel your law, and they shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. So the Israelites were called to serve in sacrifices and offerings and to serve in teaching Israel God's law. They were dispersed throughout the land in order to teach Israel but the truth about God and his character and his ways. They were dispersed for true worship. And that will become even more important to us as we skip ahead two chapters to Joshua 23, which Pete's going to preach in a couple of weeks. And Joshua is giving a warning to Israel as he's about to die. He's warning them, don't intermarry with the Canaanites because then you'll worship their false gods. You'll be led away from God. You'll transgress the covenant and you'll lose the land. The land is the barometer of Israel's faithfulness. And so reading the rest of the Old Testament, of course, we know that's exactly what they did. They turned to false gods and they lost the land. Well, part of God's defense against that was to spread the Levites throughout Israel and to teach them to follow God's way. In reading the Old Testament, let alone the New, we see God is very much concerned about how his people worship him. He makes claims on every aspect of our lives. He calls us to obey him. He gives us teachers to instruct us in the truth. He gives us teachers to warn us against false teaching. He brings us into community. So we can encourage and exhort and love and comfort and rebuke and care for one another. 
he gives us ample instructions on what true worship is. And I think that means, uh, especially in our context, that we have to talk a bit about the subjective impressions of our emotions. Emotions are a good part of how God has made us, and they're important, and they're often misunderstood. Emotions are a fruit of being spiritual beings. We know that humans have two parts, for lack of a better word. We have a body and a soul. We're we're material and we're immaterial. And our our emotions come from our, our immaterial, our spiritual selves. They're the fruit of what we value what we treasure, what we prize, what what motivates us. They reveal what's important to us. So, for example, when I'm angry, I'm craving justice for something or someone important to me, or at least what I think justice would be. And when I'm afraid, I'm craving that something bad not happen to me or to someone, something important to me. And because we're both body and soul, both material and immaterial, our emotions affect our physical bodies and our bodies affect our emotions. And much of modern medicine either minimizes or outright denies this immaterial aspect of ourselves. It denies our soulishness. And so it seeks to remedy everything with a drug as though it's purely a material problem. And that is a a huge topic uh, that I can't address today. I'm happy to talk to you about it privately. And, and Lord willing, we'll preach about it someday. It's a huge topic in how our world and how medicine engages with us. What's it mean for you to have a soul and to have emotions? So coming back to this topic of worship and emotions, having grown up in the charismatic movement, emotions in worship were at the forefront of what we considered to be lively in the church. It was what distinguished charismatics, among other things, from other people, and especially from the Reformed who were considered to be God's frozen chosen. (laughs) And so the question for any worship service was, was my heart moved? Was I excited for Jesus? Which is really just asking, how did I feel? Did it stir my Emotions, And all too often, we we can view emotions as this vague and hard-to-find indicators that are mysterious and powerful and in our age must be obeyed. But justice and worship requires that our emotions align with God's Word. Many times we view emotions as impossible to control. They just happen. And that's where you get Hollywood romances and this idea that the heart wants what it wants. And we just fell in love and it was so glorious we couldn't contain it, even though it was adultery and, and you know, it just, it's beautiful. But God commands our emotions all throughout Scripture. He commands us to love Him and to love others and to rejoice in the truth and to fear Him and to hate evil. And if we understand our emotions biblically, we've taken a big step toward bringing truth to bear upon them. Emotions and truth are not necessarily at odds. They certainly can be at odds, but it is not a necessary conflict. Jonathan Edwards said he considered it his duty as a preacher to raise the affections of his hearers as high as he possibly could so long as they were affected with nothing but the truth. Emotions and truth are not at odds. So we don't ignore or despise emotions. 
but we also shouldn't grant them determinative authority for right or wrong. This feels wrong. We don't grant them determinative authority for what we should do or determinative authority for who we should worship. So consider it this way. If I were to ask you, what does Jesus look like? For many of us, we'd get this picture of this pasty, high cheekbone, blue eyes, flowing brown hair, Victorian Jesus that we saw in some church basement. What kind of pictures is that? What kind of emotions does that picture elicit from us? What kind of God is that? What words can we see coming out of his mouth? The, the truth is the Bible doesn't describe Jesus' appearance very much, which is very interesting. We, we don't know what he looked like, but we know he didn't look like that because that's a long way from the first century Jewish man that Jesus certainly was. And that's a problem when we have false images of God, whether visually or emotionally or in any other way, conceptually, logically, theologically, when we have false ideas, false emotions, false images about God, that is a problem. God is concerned that we worship him truthfully. It's all too easy to conform God to our image rather than to worship him for who he truly is. So part of how Joshua has been serving us, I think, is revealing to us a warrior God who fights for his people. It's expanding our picture of who God is. Every time we read the Bible, our, our understanding of God should deepen and broaden. Our love for God should grow. Our, our knowledge of God is being added to, and that's affecting us. This warrior God fulfills his promises. He judges his enemies. He leads his people into blessing and abundance, and he commands them to be holy. Justice in worship is found in worshiping God truthfully and faithfully for who he is. The author of Proverbs makes a uh, connection between worship and justice that might not seem obvious to us. In Proverbs 28.5 he writes, Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. There's a very real sense in which true worship is indispensable for true justice. Until our hearts and minds submit in worship to the Lord, we will not think rightly about justice. That's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Evil men oppose the Lord. They oppose his holy reign. So they can't truly understand justice. They try to pursue it from their own self-centered perspective. They make man the measure of all things, the measure of truth. And God is incredibly loving and patient. He doesn't snuff out the flickering wick. And he is holy and just. He never ignores sin. He knows every sinful desire and thought and action. He hears every word and he will judge. And we are called to fear this God. To love him absolutely. And to fear him. And these two responses are not at odds. They are mutually reinforcing. If we love God truly for who he is, we will fear him. And if we fear God in his holiness and his beauty and his majesty, and we recognize the mercy and grace that we've received because we are not worthy of them, we will love him. It is both together all the time. Truth and grace are not at odds. So as recipients of this great salvation from our God, we are called to honor him in all our ways, to honor him in justice, to honor him in worship, 
and to honor his great salvation. The final verses of chapter 21 serve as a summary and a transition into the final three chapters of this book. So let's read Joshua 21, 43 to 45. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. This is our faithful God. He gives all that he promises without exceptions. He brings us into the land. He gives us rest. He vanquishes our enemies. He provides all that we need. Not one word of all of his good promises will ever fail. Ever. Can you imagine? Not one word. Consider that wording. Not one word of all, not all the promises, all the good promises of the Lord failed. All came to pass. Dale Ralph Davis calls these verses praise to Yahweh for complete, thorough, persistent fidelity to his promises. He is complete, he is thorough, he is persistent. In his faithfulness. He never fails. What difference should that make in our lives? How are these things meant to function? These great truths of scripture aren't, aren't just to you know, hang on a plaque on a wall. Or to be, oh, that's vaguely encouraging. Right? They are meant to be our very lifeline throughout this age. They're meant to be the interpretive key for what is going on and who we are and what's important and what we're called to do. When things are hard, where do we turn? Whose voice gets to interpret life for us? Too often the answer is either the spirit of this age, which is what, what everyone, this is how I think about life, this is how everyone thinks about life. Or it's what I feel subjectively. But the Lord has given us great and precious promises in his word. He's given us definitive truth, rock-solid truth, trial-enduring truth, inexplicable faith in the midst of suffering, truth. And he's calling us to engage those truths with faith, to live as though they are actually true, because they are. When we're suffering, truth is often the first casualty. Because in our desire for relief, we can be less concerned about what's true and, and more concerned about getting out of our struggle by whatever means we can. And how often do we see that in the history of Israel? They're, they're not far into their dramatic exodus under Moses before they're making a golden calf and longing to get back to Egypt. God wasn't satisfying them, right? What have you done for me lately, God? Getting out of Egypt, that was okay, but, but now we're here in this wilderness and there's nothing to eat and we're bored. And so they're going to shop around. We see that pattern time and again in the Old Testament, don't we? And if we're honest, we see it time and again in our own lives. So great statements of salvation like these verses at the end of Joshua 21 are meant to drill down deep into our hearts and our minds so we can actually trust God when the press of life comes upon us. Of course it will be difficult. Of course 
It will feel unpleasant. Of course we'll be tempted to turn to other offers of rescue. And the Lord is reminding us that none of his promises fail. All come to pass. So true faith insists that God alone is our life and truth. Where else shall we go? Faith is fixed on the unchanging and never failing promises of God. And of course we see those promises demonstrated in history most fully in Jesus Christ. We who have committed injustices, including the greatest injustice of sinning against God, we who deserve the punishment of an avenger of blood, find instead that we have received redemption and grace. The avenger of blood sent to punish sin has avenged himself. He bore the penalty that we deserve. He suffered the death that we earned. He bore the wrath of God that we incurred. The avenger is our redeemer. And in him, in Christ, we receive God's justice. We've been welcomed into his city of refuge. We've been loved and set free and made alive unto him. And in in an age that doesn't have a clue about what true justice is, we must act and think and live justly as we honor God. Not by ignoring sin, but by dealing with it biblically. Not by unleashing our outrage on a fallen world as though we can't understand how things got to be this way. We know why the world's filled with injustice. We know what the problem is, the sinful rebellion of, of man against God. And we know what the true solution is. The mercy and grace of Jesus Christ that pardons sinners and transforms them from wicked to righteous. From those who hate justice because it's God. And we hate God and fear him to those who love it because we've received it in Jesus So in Jesus, we're welcomed into the land of promise. We are granted true rest. There will always be injustices in our age. And part of our response to that should be a longing for the age to come when justice is fully accomplished and God's enemies are fully punished and God's people are fully saved and made fully righteous to walk with him and obey him and enjoy him forever in purity and in truth. In Jesus, not one of God's good promises have failed. All have come to pass. And one day, when he returns, we will receive the fullness of the blessing and the rest that he has secured for us. In the meantime, as recipients of such a great salvation, we must honor God in all our ways. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.